Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Muletala. Today, I am delighted to be joined by fashion visionary Cameron Silver, the owner of legendary store Decades on Melrose in Los Angeles, was introduced to me back in the days I was in London and still working for Christian Louboutin. I remember being put through on the phone to Cameron as he was trying to get his hands on a fluoro pink satin lace-up, the Freds, that had just graced one of the first men's shows that we'd ever done. I found a pair for him and later on flew to Los Angeles while I was visiting my friend Melissa, who'd also had made the introduction. And so we sealed our friendship after he took me what I would call event hopping one evening and then feeding me a chopped salad, very LA style. Now Cameron's had many adventures since he started his career, picking couture and vintage treasures for his boutique and dressing many Academy Award winners in vintage on the red carpet. So in this conversation, I ask Cameron about his origin story. We talk about service, retail, couture. We talk about his book, his TV show on Bravo, and his most recent Instagram series called Candid Cameron, which I absolutely adore. He also told me with great vulnerability about losing himself for a while in 2020 after his father passed away. Cameron's legendary sense of humor really lit up my day when we did this interview, so I hope it will have a similar effect on yours as you listen to this interview. So, enjoy. So, Cameron, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Out of the Clouds. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. So we're out of the clouds, not in the clouds. <laughs> we're out I of guess, the clouds. I guess that's better than being in the clouds. I think so too. Is it? Okay. I think so too. <laughs> I, I like to think of when the sun breaks through the clouds. That's kind of the, the light analogy I like to play with. I like that. Well, help me see the light. <laughs> well, today you're going to help us see the light. Well, I wanted to play off the welcome to the Beamer, but I just felt oh. that this would be lost on too many people. <laughs> Unless you want to start by explaining it to us. Well, so I do this silly thing called Candid Cameron, which is a Instagram live when I'm traveling and meeting new people. And I have this spiel called come to the Bima. And the Bima is where when you're at a Jewish temple, it's like where the Torah would be. And it's an honor to sit on the Bima. Like if a kid's having a bar mitzvah, they get to sit on the Bima. So I don't know how it started. Actually, it started in, in Hawaii, but it's like a thing now. I mean, I actually wear a little bracelet, a pearl bracelet that says Bima on it. <laughs> That's so brilliant. <laughs> But the best thing is when like someone has no clue, I'm like, come to the Bima, what's a Bima, which is the majority of people. But then when you explain it's like a pulpit, it's just another way of saying a, a place of honor. That's wonderful. So welcome to the stage. Thank you. It's good so to be speak. on your Bima. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to start all of the interviews inviting my guests to basically tell our listeners who you are, where you come from. The full story, really. Well, I'm from Mars. Have you had anyone from Mars yet? No, you're brand, okay. you're literally my number one. Okay. So my name is Cameron Silver. I've owned a store in LA called Decades for 25 years. 
which is um, one of the original luxury vintage couture boutiques. And I'm on Melrose between La Cienega and Crescent Heights. I grew up in Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, and have worked in fashion in some degree since I was like 15 or 16. So for you know nearly 40 years, which is really scary. And I've also worked as a luxury brand consultant and ambassador for brands uh, and creative consultant. And I love fashion because I think it's a barometer for how we live and lived and will live. Thank you. That's a, a beautiful introduction. When did you get attracted to fashion? Do you have a, a memory, anything specific? There, there actually is a specific moment that ironically happened a block and a half east of where my store is today. So my store is a block and a half west of what was Fred Siegel on Melrose and Crescent Heights. Now it's called Ron Herman. But when I was like nine or 10 years old, I was obsessed with the movie Annie Hall. Now, let me preface this. I'm, I'm an only child, and it was cheaper for my parents to take me to the movies when they wanted to see something as an underage than get a babysitter. So I saw saw a lot of like adult films as a child. But Annie Hall, for some reason, the, the sartorial look of Diane Keaton really impressed me. So I had a little straw hat on and a vest with an undone tie and rolled up white sleeve shirt and baggy khakis as this like precocious nine or 10 year old. And I was with my parents at Fred Siegel and every sales associate was like, who are you? They just thought I was like the cutest thing ever. So I I recognized that that fashion could draw people to you and break the fourth wall. So that was probably like my initial moment. And then years later, I worked at Fred Siegel when I was in high school and then now have a business a block and a half um, west of that landmark. But it, that was probably a pivotal thing. But I also remember, uh, and, and a lot of young people don't know this experience of like hearing the September vogue and bizarre drop into the mailbox because my mother would get it. And that was like the first time you were seeing clothes or watching style with Elsa Clench on a Saturday morning with my parents. My parents were both into fashion and shopping and, and discovery. That's such a beautiful story. And yeah, what a classic look, Annie Hall. Mm -hmm. When did you know you wanted to work in fashion? Was this on the cards when you were a teenager? No, it was really not the plan. I'm supposed to be really famous. So <laughs> I went, I got recruited in high school as a sophomore in high school to UCLA as an actor. So I knew I would get guaranteed admission to UCLA. And I, you know, I just assumed I'd get out of college and just <laughs> be a legend. But that didn't necessarily happen. I had always worked retail. And actually, in college, I took a year off. I was working at a store called Theodore, which was at that time, they had a location in the Beverly Center. And this is like 1990. It's the height of Mugler and Dolce's getting really big and Kenzo's having a moment. Biblos, like all of these like great, great brands. And I was like making really good money for a 20-year-old. So I took a year off and I loved the theater of retail because it's very, very similar to, you know, to, to anyone who is in a service industry or interfacing with the public. It really is all media and entertainment and infotainment. So that planted a seed, but really I still never thought I would be in retail jail at nearly 53. <laughs> That's so interesting. Retail jail. I wanted to ask you, what kind of actor were you? And how did that inform 
your sales performance? Well, so I I was very good at classical. So I, I was good with Shakespeare, more difficult roles like The Fool in King Lear, which was always kind of funny because I'm, I'm quite tall, but I would often get cast in these roles that were very presentational observers, but not as emotionally connected. So because I was not that emotionally connected. So I, I, I exceeded in that. And then I also ended up becoming an interpreter of Weimar Cabaret of 20s and 30s music. So Kurt Weill and Friedrich Hollander. Oh, wow. Again, again, very presentational, very like third person observation. So I was, at that time, I was recycling old songs. And I actually ended up doing an album in the mid 90s. And I was touring around the country looking for men's clothes, vintage clothes, just because I would be in a concert setting for you know, a couple nights or a theater setting for for two weeks. So there's no irony lost in the fact that I recycled old songs and now I recycle old clothes. Had I been a more emotionally connected 20-something, I probably would have exceeded as an actor, but it had to take a few nervous breakdowns to feel anything. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. I appreciate the fact that you started in retail so early and and the fact that you're calling it a theater. I'd love to know where storytelling became something that you used in your selling technique. Well, as a performer, I was performer. I was always storytelling, whether it was singing uh, a song written in you know nineteen thirty in Berlin or singing Cole Porter. I, I always knew to to get to engage with someone. You can't sell. It's always storytelling, and this is an every aspect of life, no matter what you do. The hard sell is it is not necessarily the most effective means. So as a storyteller, sometimes it's just, it's engaging in conversation. And I'd say particularly at this time, as we slowly get through this pandemic, a year ago yesterday, I did my first event in Boulder, Colorado. And women and men came to meet me and I did a book signing and did a mini trunk show. And they were like emotional to be in a store again after being, you know, locked down for for practically a year. And they just wanted a visceral connection. So when I talk about storytelling, it's, it's not only telling the story, but it's listening to someone else's story. Yeah, that resonates with me a lot. And I think that whenever we open ourselves to having a conversation with someone and to listen to someone else, we can make connections anywhere, any place. And certainly retail is a great um, place of opportunity for that in, in particular. Completely. And so how did decades happen? So it's the mid nineties. It's, you know, I'm, I'm performing everywhere from a mostly lesbian bowling alley in Minneapolis to being a guest at town hall in New York city And all these places I'm going, I am looking for vintage clothes. So I'm looking for men's YSL suits or a Pucci tie or a little Courage coat, just anything interesting. Because when you're a singer, my instrument had to be protected. So it's not like, you know, I could go out and have like a wild night out on the town. I really had to make sure my instrument was protected. And it's very nice to sort of just go into a thrift store. And I mean, I I do love storytelling, but sometimes I don't want anyone to tell me a story. (laughs) 
But I found that I learned a lot about cities by what they give away. So I was thrifting and I started finding a lot of women's clothing. And suddenly I was sending things to my parents and all of the sudden like they had a living room filled with racks of clothes and a store was born and I was driving and saw a four-lease sign on Melrose Avenue at, at the building I'm in now. And it had had several failed businesses. It's an art deco building from 1926. It's, it's a very attractive building from the exterior. And um, I was able to lease a quarter of it. I remember the leasing agent was like, don't do this. It's like everyone has failed. I mean, I own the building now. So it just, it was good timing. This was 1997. Vintage was just percolating as being more socially acceptable. Celebrities were just starting to pay attention to the red carpet and, and branding. And I was a novelty. I was like a, a 27-year-old guy who wasn't like batshit crazy, who, who wasn't an interloper because most of the people in the vintage world are pretty weird. I didn't want to wear any of the clothes. So it wasn't like I was trying to you know, hoard things for myself. And within a few, like a short period of time, the store had buzz. That's wonderful. I love the fact that you transformed your parents' living room into a store. That just... Oh, I mean, <laughs> my mother is still a pack rat. That, that living room had a chickering piano and a Steinway. I mean, it just was not really a functional room anyway. So. <laughs> uh, you just got me at the Steinway. Okay. <laughs> now. Around that time, and correct me if that's not the case, you became quite known as a celebrity stylist. You started to put some of these amazing vintage pieces on, on actors and actresses on the red carpet. How did that come about? Well, in 1997, 1998, 1999, uh, stars shop themselves. The stylist system had not really solidified. So it was not unusual to have like Gwyneth Paltrow pop in or... or Renee Zellweger or Winona Ryder. It's like people just would come in the store. And because my only agenda was to help you look good, I became a nice resource because vintage was a means to differentiate yourself from everybody else. And as more brands started to get into the red carpet dressing game, there still was something quite wonderful about, oh, I bought this dress. So sometimes it was almost easier for a celebrity just to come into the store, like a Marissa Tomei, and just buy a dress rather than, you know, work with a team to find her a free dress. I could see that. Also, probably a little bit more fun for her, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, I, you know, that's the thing. Like, I, I was always a safe place for people to visit. And, and I would style people, like officially style people for Oscars and, and, and things like that. I, I love real people. I love celebrities. I like skinny people. I like curvy people. I like tall. I just love the magic of the match. And uh, But I do think people really like going into a store sometimes, like do it themselves. And I think as the, the stylist system has become such a machine and there's so much pay for play, it's the joy of dressing has been lost. Yeah. And the way you describe the clothes that you curate in your store, it also sounds like there's an element of finding a treasure 
right? Uncovering yes. a treasure somewhere and just exactly and getting the gold because you know it's a one-off. You know nobody else is going to get their hands on that. And no, that that's the beauty and it's ownership. I always say, like you know, I like owners, not loners. I understand. It's fun to borrow something, and if you have the opportunity, you know, to wear something. But if you're going to the Oscars or a momentous moment, own that dress, own the memory. I think you know the circular economy is fantastic. I, I, I love the idea of of pre loved and recycling. But I, I think the greenest way to dress is to own something and wear it over and over again. And I think that's real style. So I have been very enthusiastic about celebrities publicly wearing things over and over again, because that's how we all need to dress. It's, it's, you can, you know, rent the runway left and right, but it's not the greenest thing. There's so much dry cleaning and back and forth going. So just buy something you love and and style it. (laughs) I agree. You're making me think of Tiffany Haddish when she first came out with her yes. first couple of big successes had, I think it was a McQueen dress. And yes, she was like, I, exactly, that white McQueen. And she was like, I am going to wear it everywhere. And I thought that was wonderful. And that really made her stand out to me in many ways. I think it helped propel her fame because it became such a story. And then when Kate Blanchett went to Cannes and Elizabeth Stewart, her amazing stylist and my dear friend, started to rework those pieces. Like that's what I, I hope becomes a bigger movement. And I think for retailers, it's very valuable. If you can communicate to your client who's investing a lot of money in luxury fashion, just saying, no, 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 you're going to wear this again, but you're going to wear it this way next time, or we're going to add a jacket, or you'll put it away for a year, but it's going to come back. We're going to wear it for this event. Is that where the thrill is for you to work with people over and over again? Oh, for for sure. I'm not interested in a one night stand. I'm a long-term relationship. We get married. You come to, (laughs) you come to decades, like it's serious. And And it's actually really true because so many of my great clients have become great friends and we travel together like the kids grow up with me it's a really beautiful thing and and, and I'm not just a source like you don't come to decades just to shop at decades it's really about the world I can bring you into it's about if you're interested in buying haute couture I can take you to Paris I have those relationships if you love Dolce & Gabbana and you're interested in in procuring Altamoda, you know, very, very expensive, exquisite clothing. I go, I'm that person to take you there. If you, you want to know the best theater to see in New York, I'm like a concierge for people, like this person who can help. I always say that I help really rich people spend their money better. That is a lovely way to describe what you do. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and it's, you know, and it's not just like really rich people. You know, someone comes into the store and they're visiting from out of town. I always tell my staff, it's like, I want them to leave happier than when they came in. And even if they don't buy anything, give them a moment. And if they have a question, like recommend a restaurant, get a cup of coffee over at this place, you know, give people insider information. It's interesting. I was going to quote um, something that I read Booth Moore was saying about you at the LA Times a few years ago. She called you a vintage clothing impresario, which I thought was a really interesting terminology. And suddenly you become the spokesperson for the fashion that you're curating. And I would love to hear, when did you become attracted to couture? Where, how did you discover it? 
Well, I, in thrifting, there were times when you could actually find a Dior from 54 at a thrift store. Or a, I remember, oh yeah, it was a 54 Dior. I forgot who bought it. it would, but, you know, those, those days are long gone. It just doesn't exist anymore. Everyone knows the value of their clothing or, or, or knows that their clothes can have a secondary life. I, I think Booth was very spot on about it in Empresario. As far as couture, I was very lucky that my lovely friend Susan Kasdan, she and her husband Alan, took me to the couture shows. I don't know if it was for the first time. I think I had gone sort of peripherally in the in, in the past, just because it was always around the men's shows, uh, and I was consulting for brands. But it was really going with a client and seeing the process and a good client and someone who has extraordinary taste. It it did whet my appetite and it taught me a lot about the art form and, and that it's very regimented. Buying couture is not easy. It, it's a lot of work. There's a lot of fittings. It's, I, I have a really great friend who I took for, to couture once, and, I, and this was when Lacroix was still designing, and she bought a jacket. And I said, you're the laziest couture client. That needs another fitting. It's too big. But, you know, it requires a commitment, not just financially, but time-wise. And, because you're spending a lot of money, you have to be smart with how you curate what you're getting. And I've helped people purchase these pieces of wearable art to make sure that they're curating a collection because it's a big mistake if you buy something stupid. And we've all done that. Yeah. <laughs> Not couture, but yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um that's, it. That's very interesting. I, I heard you say earlier, and you mentioned this as well in the same article with Booth, that you have a fancy life, but that you go everywhere and you dress every size and you've never been age phobic. And no. you were mentioning that you were working with a woman in her early 70s in San Francisco and you called yourself the United Nations of Fashion. I, I am... Totally the United Nations of fashion in, in, in several ways. I have, you know, traveled around the world. I've been through a Hezbollah checkpoint in Le- Lebanon. I went to Riyadh years before it was, you know, getting trendy to go to Saudi Arabia. Um, I went to Kiev right after the revolution. So I've always used fashion to bring people together. And the the woman in San Francisco just wanted to shop with me. And it was such a fun memory because she had really cool style. I mean, she's probably in her now, she's probably 80. And she actually sent me a text the other day saying, remember that day we went shopping? Because she insisted on buying me something. And I was like, no, 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 you don't have to buy me anything. It's my pleasure to do this. but she bought me a really nice Valentino suit because it brought her joy. She only had a daughter. She wished she had had a son. So, um, yeah, I I love older people so much. I love younger people. I mean, last night uh, I had dinner with these six, mostly like 24-year-olds. And it just, it's, I want to stay relevant. And I also want to be educated by people younger than me and people older than me, and I want to be around people smarter than me, but I'm generally the funniest anywhere in any environment. (laughs) (laughs) I think that probably is true of most situations. People often ask me, like, why do you get to fly private so much? I said, well, I'm funny. People want me on their airplane, (laughs) (laughs) which doesn't sound very green. But I don't have kids, so I can do whatever I want. 
There you go. (laughs) So you mentioned consulting uh, a couple of times over the course of of our conversation already. How, when did Brand started to approach you to work for them? Well, within about a year, as the store became a really popular destination where literally fashion designers would get off the plane and come straight to decades. One of the first, the first gig I really had was with Costume National. And I think 98 at the height of Costume National, which, you know, kind of was doing the slim suit really a little bit before Tom Brown and, and didn't get credit. And Anya Tapasa wanted to open a store in LA. And I remember I was in Paris and the phone rings and they said, we want to open a store, but we'll only do it if you help us. Because I think they realized that I was a good, honest person. And I mean, that was an interesting gig because I found the real estate. I found the architects. I did the buy. I hired the staff. I did the opening event. I did the after party. And that led to other gigs. So since Costume National, I've worked with Boucheron, Samsonite, Nine West, Azaro, Pringle, Laura Piana, Hermes, like all of these unique projects. And then for five years, I was associated exclusively with, with Halston. So now that I'm emancipated from that, like the gigs are coming in. So I'm just... Every, but ironic. This is a weird thing, Anne. Every brand that's approaching me is like a sleepy brand who who needs to get their DNA injected with some energy. Mm-hmm. Which is my favorite. My favorite thing to do is work with a sleepy brand that has a great DNA. That that sometimes the people within the brand can't see the light, but I can see what's cool or sexy about it. Um. Yeah, there's a lot of energy coming from you. And I could see how a sleepy brand would need behind your eye, your expertise, your know-how, that energy as well. If for some reason it just brought up the the title of that film, Stella Got Her Groove Back. I can help brands with that. And you know, I'm not the youngest person. I'm not some 20 TikToker, but I have the relationships with the stores. I know all of the independent stores. I know most of the fashion directors of department stores. I know most of the editors. I know most of the stylists. I know a lot of the celebrities. Plus, I know my fashion history. So I'm very useful. And then a lot of these brands have to build archives. So they bring me on to sort of help with building the archive, which then helps inform the new collection. Because I always say, use your DNA or lose your DNA. And there's, you know, always another designer who's going to see what your what what's in your history who's going to come to decades and shop and buy the inspiration. So that's really fun to help a brand. I mean, most creative directors at a brand, they they know the the historic DNA of their brand, but sometimes you gotta just really own it and figure out how you can morph it into something else. Mm, I love that saying. Use your DNA or lose your DNA. I will remember yeah. that. Well, I was like, you know, I always say use your DNA or lose your DNA because Michael Kors will take it. I mean, I don't mean that in a despairing <laughs> way to Michael, to Michael Kors at all, but, but it's like, a, a not, I, using Michael as just as, as an example, like another designer is going to be able to use what you might be part of your DNA and own it. And like, it's so interesting with a brand like Balmain, whose current incarnation really has nothing to do with its historic DNA other than like embellishment as part of the Balmain DNA. But, but I can look at, 
Oh, nah. and, and see like, okay, I can see where that comes from. And like those big gold buttons remind me of that brand. And now it seems like it's part of the Balmain DNA. Mm, you're right. Yeah. He really established that mm-hmm. over its repetition as well to, yes, to get the message and the design recognized by clients and press like. It's, you know, it's like politics or anything like, you know, you say it over and over again and, or dictatorship and people believe it. And it's yeah. the same thing with a brand. Mm. So over the course of your career, you have been on TV a lot. Tell mm. me where I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, so no, I have done a lot of, you know, guest appearances as a fashion authority for, you know, all of those cable and, and Good Morning America. And I did a TV show for Bravo, which... I, I always say I survived a Bravo show. <laughs> yeah. And, and interestingly enough, there's like a, a, a new TV project brewing right now, which maybe will finally be with producers who know what to do with me and don't try to turn me into someone I'm not because mm-hmm. I don't want to be a Bravo celebrity. I mean, I don't think people are dumb and I think we dumb down TV so much. Like I want to do something that elevates people, but that's still entertaining. So, you know, We'll see what happens with that. But I, but I have done a lot of TV. And, but of course, now I just have candid camera and all six viewers on my Instagram. I, I was going to come to that. I fell in love with it. So I don't spend enough time on Instagram for someone in my um, field of work. But I love what I discovered. Can you tell us how you created Candid Cameron? And what can people expect if they decide to go to your archive on your Instagram? <laughs> So, you know, Candid Cameron is just the idea of interviewing people primarily in in the fashion world. And my talent is something that Howard Stern is good at doing, although he does it much better, is I can disarm someone and get people to be revealing or silly. For example, you know, Alberto Nardi, you know, Nardi, one of the great Venetian jewelers, aristocratic Venetian family. But I was able to disarm him to bring a silliness out of him and his mother, who happened to to be there. So I just enjoy interviewing people. And there is a little bit of a, a commerce aspect of it because then people DM me and want to buy things. Sometimes it's not a full on Instagram live, sometimes it's just a couple posts in my stories. But it can generate a significant amount of business, which is shocking in the most unsophisticated way. Off my iPhone, I just ordered like real, like a three-pack mic thing, so the sound quality will be better in the future. But it's not very sophisticated what I do, and maybe that's why it works, because it's kind of raw and honest, and it's not overproduced. And I make the subjects become a little bit more interesting, because vulnerability is powerful. And if I can make someone seem a little more vulnerable, I'm not saying crying on cue, but that's what I do. And then the DMs flood in and suddenly like, oh my God, my my show is making more money, probably has a bigger net profit with a zero overhead than, than an hour of QVC. That's unbelievable. But I have to tell you, I completely agree with you because yesterday, so I watched several episodes, but I loved the one you did in Red Hook. <laughs> you made me laugh so much. Oh, in Red Hook? And Red <laughs> oh my God. What did you call it? Bum. Yeah, bums. bum fuck, bum fuck Brooklyn. It's like, it was so far away. So funny. I, I have been to Red Hook. I know where this is. But the store was 
gorgeous. And these people yes. with the vintage fabrics. <gasps> it's really cool what they do. So I, I, I also love, you know, giving someone a little exposure, someone emerging. Or, but, you know, I'm, I'm now trying to scale it into a, a, a more professional way, not just on the candid camera and format, but working on something with a more established multi-channel retail uh, media company, different from the TV show I was talking about. Mm. So we're filming something in New York on the 14th with a certain Academy Award nominated actress. And we'll be discussing her clothes, which will be sold to benefit the Actors Fund. Oh, beautiful. So we're going to kind of take that technique and and that sort of storytelling. So I, I think it's, you know, a little like 12 minutes. It's like people have such a short attention span. So I'm, you know, I'm learning like shorter is better. And it is incredible how much business can be generated with the most unsophisticated production. Yeah, but see, I trust your eye. And so I know that whichever candid Cameron I check out, I'm going to be interested, whether that's the ceramics in the Four Seasons in Lisbon or mm. the Nardi. Oh, by the way, you had me, you called yourself <laughs> Cameroni d'Argento. Si, si, si. I oh, no. was at this fancy restaurant in Geneva last night and I was laughing so hard. You have no idea. No, interesting, interestingly enough, with Mr. Nardi, I... We had so much business after that Instagram that I proposed to Mr. Nardi. Why don't you give me a cartel of Nardi to sell in America? Americans are not traveling to Venice. We have done a lot of business together, like a significant amount of money that I'm sure if any major, like if Tiffany knew how much business I have done off of that simple Instagram live, like you don't have to pay me Beyonce dollars. <laughs> I, I, don't say that don't yeah, say that take but, it back but like like i can move a lot of inventory and tell a, and more importantly and this is something where I, I think it's i can tell the story of nardi to people who may know the name but may not be mm. that familiar with it people just want authenticity they want to learn nobody wants to feel dumb they want to feel smarter they want to laugh i mean we've been through a pandemic for over like we're into it's third year this is bullshit we want to have fun you know we thought it would be like the roaring 20s by now it's you know this it's not the roaring 20s yet but but i have faith <laughs> i'm glad you do because the other day i read in uh in a report on high snobiety that they've nicknamed the dreadful 20s i hope that high snobiety will be proven wrong i mean um, we're only two years we're only two years into the 20s so i know i know I forgot to ask you, how did you find the name Decades? Where is the inspiration from? So it just sort of came to me. I, I initially really focused on the 60s and 70s when the store opened. Because my whole thing with vintage is that does it, it has to look modern. I don't care if it's Edwardian. It has to look modern. So that the name Decades, I think I was, just, again, like just driving and the name came to me. For somebody who doesn't like to drive, although I'm a native Angelino, for a lot of people who drive a lot, that's sort of like when a lot of the um, light bulb thinking happens sometimes. And that's how the name came. I've, I've trademarked it. I've got to sue some store in Palm Springs that's trying to use the name Decades. Ah. Because it's, you know, 
I mean, it's just all been fortuitous timing. The store opened at the right time. I am forever grateful to Richard Buckley, the great editor and, and Tom Ford's partner who, who passed away, who found the store and really helped connect a lot of dots for me. And, and I never expected exploited that with people, but like I would go to Paris and like Richard took me to the flea market and taught me about furniture and, and just was so instrumental. And, you know, that had Tom come into the store who then invited Lisa Eisner and then it's Ronnie Sassoon and all of these people who, who really embraced what I was doing. That's beautiful. And so in 2012, Decades became the name of your book as well. Yes. Thank God I wrote that book that came out the same time of, of my horrible TV show. The book came out in 2012 and it still gets printed. I am giving a speech on Tuesday in Sarasota related I saw to the that. book. Amazing. So I was lucky that Bloomsbury publishes the book. And, and as the book was getting conceived, they were very clear that this is going to be a perennial. And they wanted a, a, a book with depth, not like a fluffy fashion history book. So we're in its third printing. I assume there will be a fourth. I should probably write a new book, but books are hard. It takes so much time, especially coffee table hybrid essay books. Mm. So yeah, the book was great. It was a it, the first printing printing like blew out. Dita Von Teese was at my opening the launch dinner. It was so chic. It was Dita Von Teese, Marissa Tomei, Kristen Davis. It was just such a chic group of women who have inspired me and and still friends with all all of those great great women. Oh, that's wonderful. But so I was wondering, a decade on, sorry, because obviously I'm using the word decade, what does it mean to you to have created that book and that legacy for your store and also an ode as the impresario of vintage fashion to the clothes that you love? I'm really proud of the book and it was a long process and my incredible friend and uh, writer with me, Rebecca De Liberto, we had a really beautiful process of writing it and adjusting it. But it really is my my legacy at, at this point, this book. That's why there has to be printings till the day I die. But three or four days ago, they were screening the Pierre Cardin film somewhere and they reached out to me to comment about it for, you know, at some university. And the guy who reached out is like now, I think like an associate professor, but 10 years ago, he, he said, you know, God, you know, your book has been such a reference for me all through his academic journey. And that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to write a book that was personal and it's done in first person, which is unusual for this type of book. It's, you know, attractive, it's beautiful enough for, for a coffee table, but I said I wanted it to have enough gravitas that it could be in a locker or a library. And I'm thrilled that that it's used as a reference by so many academics and and fashion lovers. Plus it matches every room in the house because it's a multicolor cover. So I'm proud of it. I, I, I really do want to write another book and probably not fashion-based book. I'd like to write about like my, my family, my crazy family in life, but but, you know, it's just, I'm not, I, I'm not regimented enough. Like I need to like, be in, I need like a military boss to say, okay, you got to write for two hours. You know, that's what I need. I hear writing is very difficult. So I don't think mm -hmm. it's, I don't think it's just you, but I appreciate that. I hope that you do write a book about your family. Oh, it's, it's going to be good. I mean, <laughs> I went to a crazy first half of the pandemic. So <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. 
So recently, I was I was obviously looking through your Instagram, and I I laughed when I read that you schlepped the Marabou DG to Aspen, which you can explain to people what it what it stands for. Yes. Um, and I wanted to say you're you're pretty daring with your personal style, and I was wondering if you could speak to what it means to you to be able to dress following your instinct, and what that means in terms of personal expression. Well, I mean, I really like to play dress up probably to the chagrin of my boyfriend. But I I like, um, when I'm in Texas, I'm wearing a cowboy hat and boots and fringe. I mean, I, I out Texan the Texans. When I'm in Saudi Arabia, I dress so traditionally that people just assumed I was Syrian because I'm tall and lighter skinned and grew out the beard. And they'd speak to me in Arabic. I'm like, no, no, I'm a nice Jewish boy from Beverly Hills. But the schlepping of the marabou feather coat. So I have a very close relationship with with. Dolce and Gabbana and Juicy, who's Domenico's niece, had seen a little Instagram of me wearing this white marabou feather coat to the floor. And she's like, you have to have that. You have to have it. So I brought it. Schlepping is a Yiddish term to like, you know, what's like. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Schlepping is bringing something bulky with you. Yeah, like it's like going to Aspen Gay Ski Week, which was like the gayest thing I've ever done. I (laughs) like whoa that was a lot of guys but there was a white party so i brought the white marabou feather like it's to the floor it's like marlena dietrich marabou feather coat and wore it to the white party and it was a sensation and it's like if i want to play dress up i'm already planning my outfits for telluride palm beach is all going to be terry cloth it's all little terry cloth blazers and espadrilles, which I have to find because half my stuff is in storage because I'm like living like a nomad. But but I do think it's fun to play dress up. And, you know, when I was doing Halston for five years, I, I was a little bit more conservative. It would be like a turtleneck and, you know, a blazer. And then sometimes I would wear like a good Louboutin, you know, like a fun shoe. But in general, I was a little bit more subdued. And and I'm sure I look better, more subdued. You know, kind of classic is usually better for everybody. But I like to have fun and I'm enjoying eccentricity again. It would be easier if I could get rid of my belly. But it's just fun to play dress up. And I think that I like authentic eccentricity. I do not like manufactured eccentricity, i.e. half the people who go to Fashion Week and just want to get photographed. I can't deal with that. But when it's to the core of my bones, and I don't take it like I'm not that over the top, but but it's fun. Yeah, I agree with you. And I am wearing today my most feathery outfit. I know. I like I like the sleeves. What yeah, is that? It's a Dries sweater that was just right. this fall winter. And I, lo- I, I love Dries. I love Dries. And I could have bought the black with the navy feathers, but that I thought that was boring. And you know. Yes. Red feathers. Well, you know, were... I'm doing a pop up in Telluride. So I mean, Telluride's like Aspen, except it's a little bit more subtle. Mm-hmm. But I'm curating all of these brands that don't have a, a retail presence. There's not a tremendous amount of retail in Telluride, although there's quite a bit of concentration of wealth. And I just said, you know, give me your most over the top après ski look or ski suit because. People, if they have access to it, they'll wear it and it's fun. People, we all need to have fun. Clothes are a wonderful means to express oneself. Everybody has style. I don't care 
who you are. If you're, unless you're a nudist and if your style is like letting it, <laughs> letting it hang, that's your thing. But it's, it's amazing that anybody who has the, the means to dress themselves and you can be in prison and wear a low ride, low rider pants or, you know, and that becomes infiltrates popular style. We, we all have style. It's because we get dressed. And some people's style is, you know, a stinky pit stained t-shirt and a pair of Levi's with mud on it. And then that inspires someone else to do a deconstructed t-shirt and uh, jeans that are fabricated to look like that. Yeah, that's kind of amazing. Thanks for expressing it that way. I have a, a friend who has a, a wonderful podcast uh, called Talk About Talk. And we were talking about personal brand and how style and how we dress is just so important for people's personal brands. And yet so few people take the time to curate it. Um, I've always played dress up. I, I once said that if I wrote an autobiography, it would be it would be called Costume Changes. We're all in drag. I think it was Ali McGraw who said, like, what's your drag? We were at the ethnographic show in Santa Fe. Like, are you do you want cowboy drag? Do you want um Native American drag? Uh, and I think we're all like kind of wearing a little drag. I mean, RuPaul said, like, we're born and then we put on our and then we're in drag. Is that RuPaul saying? <laughs> yeah, maybe I I probably, it's more inherent to me. It's very natural, like getting dressed. Like yesterday I was working on an outfit to wear Saturday in Houston because I'm a, and I'm not typically such a planner. Now it's starting to sound like I've really calculated and manufactured, but I was, you know, going to go out for dinner at Soho House last night. And I figured like I would kind of give a test run of a variation of what I'm going to wear on Saturday. It'll change a little bit on Saturday. So I just enjoyed doing it. I love like I love dressing for my environment. As I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm like Zelig. Like I will blend in at a certain point. I, I, I love that, you know, every place in the world has some regional style of dressing. And I like learning about it. You know, we live in a world that's very sensitive to cultural appropriation. And it's now in my PowerPoint, when I talk about the history of fashion, I, I, mention, I show a photo of Frida Kahlo of, that was done in Vogue. And, and I find it so influential. But is it cultural appropriation if you're wearing something folkloric, like a, a skirt with embroidery? And to me, like, I just want to embrace and learn about these cultures. Some people use food. Some people, you know, use, well, I mean, I like museums and art. But for me, my way to connect is through clothes. Thank you. I, I understand what you're saying about the folkloric element. But I feel your energy and desire for connection and appreciation and discovery. And that's, that's kind of wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's such a beautiful way for us to connect. It, it's, it's a very sensitive topic, but I really connect with other cultures by the way they, they dress or their customs. I remember being in New Zealand and having an extraordinary experience with a Maori family and, and getting a, a piece of punamu, their, their jade. And I treasure it because it was a, a moment of, of, it was a cultural exchange and, and learning how, you know, you, you put your nose to each other. I love all of these traditions. And, you know, my family by marriage is primarily Filipino. So I grew up with a lot of Filipino culture. I grew up wearing a barong or eating ponzit because, you know, people think I'm the tallest Filipino on the planet, but I don't have blood, Filipino blood. I just have 
a cultural connection to the Filipino people who are just extraordinary. Mm. Thank you. They said United Nations of Fashion. It's like, <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. seriously, I'm going to run for president. I'm going to run, and we're going to bring everyone together. That's a lovely aspiration. I'm not in your country, but I'd vote for you for sure. I wanted to ask you just a couple of questions about retail because you're very experienced. And as you were mentioning with the, your extraordinary results with Candid Cameron, you're very knowledgeable as well as to what your customer base wants. And you were mentioning to me that you've started doing a lot of trunk shows around the US on top of running your own store. And I remember reading in your interview in uh, WWD that you said, I'm a white love experience for people. I've never tried to be everything to everyone. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could explore that for our listeners a little bit. Well, you know, we must stay on brand. So I, you know, I curate these trunk shows that are a mix of vintage and pre-loved from decades and about 25 to 30 guest designers from around the world, mostly independent. I try to focus on female, as many minority female-owned businesses, and all with a sustainable component. However, it's expanding that more traditional luxury brands want to interface because I'm getting it in front of the consumer in an unexpected way. I mean, Telluride will be an interesting test because I'm working with some major, major luxury brands, but I'm curating it. I have a point of view. Now, granted, I have to provide the right things for the community I'm going to. And I try to explain this to my staff at decades. Like, y'all might love, I don't know why I'm saying y'all so much. It's because of the time I'm spending in Texas. I think y'all is like the best word ever. But you, just because you only like early 90s or early aughts doesn't mean that's the only thing we can have in the store. We, ha- we have to have something for our client base. So it's a fine line. Like we, we need to shape shift to where we're going, but there always has to be a point of view. It's all about the edit. So I cannot sell anything I don't like. That That is the way it works. I like a lot of stuff, so which is nice. And I also can understand how something will be relevant to uh, a client in a certain part of the world. I was having an argument with Jared, who's worked for me for like 23 years. He's like a legend. And, you know, I have all of these vintage Aloha shirts. He's like, oh, you have all these Aloha shirts. You know, this is so not decades. I said, you know, we don't just have to sell Chanel and Dior. They're beautiful vintage Aloha shirts. They are so inspirational for brands like Valentino uh, and Saint Laurent, who are playing around with Aloha prints. These are the original ones. And, you know, when you're in Hawaii... Kind of nice to get a vintage Aloha shirt. Or if you're in Palm Beach and you're like this cute young woman, you get one, you put it on over a little bra top. So I I make it look relevant to the decade's DNA, but I can't cater to everybody. I think a lot of the biggest challenge with this pre-loved world and the circular economy and all of these websites, none of which are profitable, that keep getting VC money thrown into them and they have to do a million transactions is that they're trying to be everything to everybody. You got to edit. You got to make it easy for the consumer. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. And that's why those the great retail stores. Like I'm, I love the Webster. The the Webster does a beautiful job curating or Maxfield does a really good job in Los Angeles. These these stores or the Chapman's did such a great job when they were like in charge of everything with, with matches or, or Browns. They just like, they were personality driven businesses 
that catered to a clientele who wanted that point of view. So that's my advice to to retailers. Stop throwing spaghetti on the wall. Not everybody has to love what you do. You might have something for everybody, but educate them, take them up and and show them show them the light. Thanks. I really really enjoyed that. You made it around the edit, but you also said something super interesting. You talked about being a shapeshifter. And Mm -hmm. earlier this week, I was learning about the importance of having a flexible brain. I'm studying on the side. Uh, It's contemplative psychology. Um, You were always smart, though. You've always been way too smart for fashion. <laughs> Let's just put, put a pin in that. But it's very interesting because I was reading that adaptability is something that we often don't consider as an essential an essential trait that we need if we want to thrive, not just now, but thrive into the future. I mean, it's how we became a species, a human species, is, is we have to shape shift, shift and survive. And you know, shape-shifting means lots of things. Like I have to interact with people with whom I don't often have the same political affiliation, but I can arrive at that place where we are connected and we we are, you know, it's again the United Nations of fashion. It's just, you know, we live in such a divisive world. It's so, so disheartening, but we have to be able to amuse each other and, and tease each other in a loving way. But yeah, I realize like not everybody thinks the way I think, and that's okay. That's what makes the world more interesting, but I can find where we are similar and not focus on just where we are different. Mm. Yes. I was just listening to Trevor Noah a little bit earlier, who was talking about the Spotify Joe Rogan feud. And he was making the same point. You can disagree and still have a conversation with someone. And that's something that I feel we are getting less and less good about. But it's it's terrible. I mean, they talk about how D.C. used to be that you would go. There would be some doyen or society figure would would host a cocktail party or a dinner party and all of these different fractions of political parties. But we really only have two in the States, but, you know, different people would get together and break bread. Now, in the 21st century, we're not going to eat bread. So it's, you know, but we're going to break crudite together or something. Well, in D.C., you can eat bread because, you know, that's Hollywood for ugly people. But um, <laughs> it's just it's so important. And that's one thing like I really love to do this. This summer, I'm going to have a residency in Sag Harbor and we're going, you know, I'll be doing a pop-up and there'll be different, like every week there'll be a different luxury brand that will set up and do a curated experience. We're going to have dinner parties and salons and I want people to get together. Granted, it's like, it's the Hamptons. So there's, you know, a lot of sameness, but but I love bringing different people together. I like uncomfortable situations. Like I, I I, I, mean, I don't want to say I like uncomfortable situations, but but I don't mind the challenge. One of my biggest problems with Aspen Gay Ski Week is that there were too many gays. <laughs> it's just like I need multiculturalism. I need different people around me. I thrive off of that. Yeah, I don't believe that you are the norm. Your type is the norm, but I am very similar to you. And I love, 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 love multiculturalism. And the residencies in Sag Harbor sound wonderful. When is that starting? So that will launch on the 15th of July with my friend opened a beautiful destination, Chris Coffee, called Sage and Madison. And he has residency there. So he's got three, like you can do these like gorgeous luxury Airbnb uh apartments in this historic building. He's got a very chic barn store. And then and then I'm going to have my pop-up there. 
for, well, it's really more of a residency because it's, it's for a minimum of a, of a month, but it's going to be fantastic. So we want to be like the fashionation, the, the fashion destination in the Hamptons for the summer. Ambitious, but I would expect nothing less from you. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you can make that happen. And we're aiming high. Yeah, absolutely. There's one thing that I wanted to touch on, which I feel like I've heard you tell me in the past that you were also teaching in and around fashion history. Is that correct? Yes, I've been brought in quite often to either do mentorships for students to talk about fashion history. My favorite thing to do is work with graduating classes and work one-on-one with the students to help them articulate, not with emojis, but with words and feelings, what what their design is. And I think one of the challenges for younger people now is that they just don't know how to communicate. But we still live in a world where like to get a job, even if it's on a Zoom, you, you still have to do an interview. The one thing I've really observed is sometimes the most talented student doesn't get the job. It's the most engaging. So, you know, sometimes when I'm with these students and somebody's done a beautiful senior collection, they can't communicate it. So I really enjoy working to help a student um, find the words and and the emotions and the references and to be able to get a job or, or meet an editor or meet a buyer. Because if you don't have that ability, it's really, really difficult. Fashion design, you know, in general, most uh, creative director gigs, it really is casting. Every so often you have the magic that it's an Albert Elbaz who's got the talent and the charm or Karl Lagerfeld who has the, the talent and the sketching and the vision, but also knew how to give like a good bonbon to press. For those brands that do not do that, that are, are giving jobs to creative people who might be talented, but who don't have that extroverted quality, it's extremely challenging to break through the noise. They have to be really, really talented, and you have to have such a major social media game. And it's hard to engage with kind of the wealthier, more mature client who wants that connection, who doesn't just want to you know live virtually. So, you know, I think for people like me in my position who can navigate and be like a glue in so many aspects, there is a demand. I'm, I mean, I'm not a fashion designer, I, I, but I can help put it all together and most important, communicate it to the exterior because without that, it's really hard. I think there's very few brands that have major success without a personality behind their brand. I mean, like you work with Christian for all those years. I mean, he has a personality. Yeah, but also I think that Christian made a conscious decision. He's actually more introverted than extroverted, but he chose to be that extrovert and that spokesperson for his brand because he knew that this is something that his clients wanted because he worked, guess what? He worked retail. He worked in his own store. So he had direct experience with what people wanted. And so he did throw himself on the stage to make a success of his passion. Yes, and and I think that's such an incredible example. That's why I always tell people like work retail, work retail. Your thing means nothing. Your design means nothing until you get it on a body and not, and not just a model or an actress. You get it on someone who actually paid for it. Learn why he or she is buying it. Retail is such an important part of education. And the beginning of the pandemic, when we all thought brick and mortar, like, oh, it's over, it's over. I was like, oh my God, I own this building on Melrose. No one's going to want it. It's going to be a senior living facility. And like, it's back in a bigger way than ever brick and mortar. Now, every, all of these brands that emerged in the pandemic that were um, 
online only. Now they're opening brick and mortar because you got to communicate. You've got to like tell that story. It's very difficult to create an emotional experience virtually. It's well, yeah. And it's also because people are a little bit sick and tired of looking at their screens. Yes. And, and you know, I, I was giving this example. I, I, actually, I, I was told this example and, and I've, you know, appropriated that, you know, shopping online is a little triggering right now. It's really uh, reminiscent of the darkest days of the pandemic when you couldn't do anything. So I, I think that this notion of multi-channel retail that I think is going to grow of you can't just slap stuff up online anymore. There's got to be context. You've got to create content. You've got to storytell. So, because the return rates are also enormous. So, the more education you can give a client, the the more success you have to making it be a a transaction that actually concludes successfully. Transactions. As you're speaking, I am connecting in my mind to a couple of younger. Um, designers that I've worked with or I'm currently working with. I would love to hear um, if you have any other advice to impart on anyone who wants to put out a an independent brand and who has sustainability and and the the well-being of people in the planet, you know, in, in mind as well. Well, first and foremost, I think it is a great moment to be an independent. I think conglomerate fashion, although it's attractive and, and has power, but I have found that most of my most rarefied clients are desperate for discovery. They, they want something nobody else has. That, that woman who has 40 Birkin bags, she's like, find me the niche bag that's $800 that's independently done. Like, there's attraction to that. So it's a good moment to um, be independent. Certainly, it's, the sustainability factor is paramount. I do not think any brand can look at successful longevity without having a pivot in mind to have sustainability become part of their mandate. And for those independent designers, I mean, you do have the beauty of social media and all of these things to, to get things out there, but make us laugh, entertain us, give us infotainment, which I think is such an interesting term. But infotainment goes back to what we initially talked about with storytelling. You know, at the end of the day, the product has to be good, but you've got to be able to communicate that product to the customer. So be vulnerable, which is something that I have learned. Like vulnerability is super powerful. Now I sound like Brene Brown and, you know, <laughs> her podcast. And I always say vulnerability is not about crying on cue, but tell me a little story. Let me, let me get to know you a, a, a little better. Let me love you, love you. Like we all want to fall in love a little bit with a designer and we all want to like be the one to discover, like, this is my new best friend. Look at this brand. So, so celebrate that. And there are, a lot of organizations that I that are emerging, like I, I'm very interested in Fashion Trust, which is providing money for independent designers because we need the independence. Not everything can be a conglomerate. Not everything can be logo-fied. Not everything can be like a hoodie. So we we need that creativity in a sense that that couture sensibility. And by couture sensibility, I'm not saying like you have to make like a $250,000 gown, but artisanal, like all of that, like handiwork, all of that is so attractive to people right now. We want to touch something that makes us feel something. It's the ultimate shopping experience. When you find something, you touch it and you're like, oh my God. Like, well, And you have that sense of wanting appropriation. And Actually, I'd say even 
the some sensuality. Oh, com- completely. I, I was talking to the kids last night, you know, all the 24-year-olds. And I was like, what's it like to date as a 24-year-old during a pandemic? I mean, it's so weird with all of these apps. Like, how do you meet people and connect with people? It's very similar with, with clothes. Like, there's such a magic of touching something. I go into a store like touching, touching. My hands are clean. Like, you know, I don't have like hot chocolate or, you know, fudge all over them. But we have not been able to replicate that virtually, which is why these little pop-ups I do of these independent brands and get it in front of of these verified clients in places like Sarasota and Palm Beach and, and Memphis and Houston. It's very valuable to these designers because then they they become if they don't have storefront or lots of retail distribution they become online customers i've helped them build the connection that's so precious that's really really important for so many of them i wanted to pivot the conversation and i wanted to talk a little bit about your dad jack b silver yes, yes. so he passed away in october 2020 all my condolences again to you and your and your family. Thank you. I was very, very touched about how honestly you spoke about the really hard times that you went through together and yes. the end of life care that you provided him. And, and something really resonated when I, I reread your post actually yesterday and tears came to my eyes immediately. Mm. Um, Something that really touched me as well is how you were honest as how you found it very hard to take care of yourself while you were providing that care for him. Oh, yes. And I was wondering if you'd speak to that a little bit because it felt like such a heartfelt, profound, honest thing to tell other people about because I find Mm -hmm. that we don't really talk about, we don't really talk about death. We don't talk a lot about grief. I think we all often shy away from, from the more difficult subjects. And yet especially, we're all going to go through it. <laughs> especially my family, we don't talk about anything. It's like, ah. the wasp, it's like the waspiest mentality. Losing a parent during the height of the pandemic was extremely difficult and extremely challenging because hospitals were scary or healthcare workers. But, you know, I became my father's primary caretaker. We did hospice at home. It was super challenging because for my mother, it was very difficult for her to accept what was going on and very easy to go, you know, into your safe place. And for me, I just more or less like stopped eating. I was getting emaciated because it wasn't just, you know, my father, it was the pandemic. It was fearful of my business. It was, there was so much uncertainty going around and I couldn't see the light. I, I was morbidly depressed. It's probably the most important thing I've ever done. And and it's still, you know, it, it haunts me and it's what I really want to write about. And, you know, there's times where I thought, God, I didn't do such a good job, but I, I did the best I could during like the worst circumstances. It would have been so much easier I mean, it, it, without a pandemic. But I mean, imagine how fearful we were of anyone coming to the house. So I... I wasn't sleeping, wasn't eating. I wasn't even drinking that much water. All the things you have to do when you're getting depressed, which is like eat well, drink water, exercise, therapy, you know, take meds. I just was like fighting it, making myself worse and worse. So it it was extraordinarily challenging. I was talking last night with a friend who lost 
her grandfather at the height of the pandemic. And, you know, my situation, this was about a five month hospice situation. It was, it was a long time. And it was really like, you know, the the last week is just, it's, it's horrible. It seems so inhumane as the medicine gets removed and you stop with the food and eventually the, the, the liquids. But at the same time, it is the most beautiful thing you can do because my father wanted to be home and he wasn't alone and hospitals are, you know, kind of shield us from this. And and my my friend made a really good point. Annie said, you know, years ago, this is how it just happened. If someone got sick, you were at home and you took care of that person. In, In more recent times, the hospitals took care of them. So I think the greatest gift you can give anybody at that stage of life is to try to lead them to the, the next stage of which is death. But um, I, ho- I hope no one has to do it through a pandemic again. I mean, it was really, really difficult. And I, and I didn't take care of myself. And I wanted to write about it because I was suffering tremendously, but I was skinny. And I, I got through it because it was really dark. It was really, 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 really uh, a a difficult time. But I made, you know, I made it through. And I am grateful that I was able to be there for my father. Did I ever think I would change his diapers or, or, or things like that? Growing up? No, but it's, it's what I needed to do. And, and, circumstances, if there had not been a pandemic and all of these horrible things that happened, I probably would have not been able to provide in the same way. So I'm, I am grateful for that. And I just, you know, I think anyone who's going through a really dark time, I, someone had mentioned that they were having a very difficult time, like six months ago. And I just, just, just talk to me because I went through it. I thought there was no light at the end of the tunnel and, you know, I made it, I made it through. But, and again, this is about being vulnerable. So it's made me more of an authentic person and which is kind of ironic in the world of fashion, which seems so frivolous and presentational in reality, like I've made great friends and have had serious conversations with people with tremendous depth. And I think great creative people have to be emotionally connected and vulnerable because you have to dig into that deep space of creativity, which is otherworldly to create things. Yeah, that's such a, that's such a beautiful point. I, I believe that you are right. And the greatest difficulty I find is depending on how anyone going through a tough time is internalizing and whether or not they've learned to speak or not speak about needing help is what could lend them in further darker times. Oh yeah. It it just, you spiral, it gets worse and worse. I mean, our our minds trick us and I, you know, I've done the work since probably not enough work. I should probably be like in daily therapy, but I now like, if I see someone having a mini crisis, like a mini breakdown, they've lost their phone and it's the end of the world or, you know, you know, these little things that can spiral us. I can objectively, like hopefully let them see the objectivity in the same way that I'm less triggered by things that in the past would have 
bothered me. And then, you know, you get triggered. So then you react and then it gets ugly. I think I'm a, I'm a better person for going through what I did, but it's like, you know, I had to more or less break down, but that's what we all have to do to sort of get to our authentic selves. I'll be doing this forever and ever. You know, I, I come from a family that is extremely emotionally disconnected, very anti-therapy. You know, I always say like, how are the only Jewish family that's like, you know, they like Woody Allen films, but hate therapy, you know, not, <laughs> not, not, not introspective. The coping mechanisms is to conceal and, and I just, I can't live like that. It's just, and I don't think anyone should have to live like that. It's it's okay to be sad. It's okay to share. And and I really saw who my great friends were. I mean, my friends who kind of knew what was going on, they were amazing. And and they'd never forget the the day my dad died. He died early in the morning on ten ten twenty. Like that afternoon, my friend Jennifer, who had been such a rock star for me. It's like Academy Award nominated actress. And it's a pandemic. And she had all of this food delivered because she knew I wasn't eating. And I had another friend, Lizanne, who cooked for me and another friend, Amber, who made soup for me. These people just like these little small gestures were very grand to me and can't thank these friends enough for recognizing. And I had like a small circle who got me through, but we couldn't even see each other because, you know, we were Scared we were going to kill each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm really happy that that you were able to to make it through. You know that the podcast is that is at the crossroads between business and, and mindfulness. And what I mean yes. by mindfulness is anything that is supporting us to find balance in whatever form. I'm wondering what what do you rely on? Well, so you know, after my dad died, and it got like it was really bad for me. I, mean, I took a month to to really be with other people going through an extremely difficult time. And I became great friends with somebody. And I then spent five months with her in Boulder uh, beginning of last year. And, and we just supported each other. And I mean, Boulder's magical. The sun was shining even when it was cold. And we ate well and we exercised and and... I got my mojo back, but I had a partner in doing that, which was really like I, a, a great, great friendship was developed. And I think that's, I needed to be in service of someone else who was also in service to me. So we could communicate honestly. And, and, you know, I, I pray not a religious person, but like, you know, I, and I don't always do it. It's like last night I remember to, you know, just sort of like a little, to have a spiritual practice. My spiritual practice was very broken and, you know, it's like having a sense of purpose was really important because my sense of purpose for quite some time was my father. And then that was gone. So it's like, oh my God, I have no sense of purpose. And there's a pandemic and it's like, I'm going to lose everything. And then I started to see the light. And that's how this whole new traveling trunk show thing started. And it fed off what I needed, which interaction with people. I'm such a people person. So the first 10 weeks of the pandemic, I was by myself in Westchester, Pennsylvania, like not even in my home. So it was very dark and then come back to LA and there's riots and then my father's dying. So it's just like, it was one thing. I mean, it was such a shit show, but then there's always a light and there's always a sense of 
purpose. Sometimes it's, yeah, I pretty much hit as close to rock bottom as I could. I need to get back to that person I was at the beginning of last year, which was, you know, working a spiritual practice, exercising, being in service to others. But, you know, the, the biggest thing that happened is I lost my sense of humor during the darkness. And that, and I thought I would never get it back. I remember watching the Borat film, like I could barely laugh. And that film is funny as hell. I'm sure I was malnourished because I wasn't eating. And it's like, this is an organ. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, I do agree with you. A spiritual practice, whatever form it takes. For some people, it's just communing um, with nature, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you were in a beautiful place, getting fresh air, oh. connecting with the sun, yeah. and, and, and being connected to people. Mm. Yeah, I mean, for example, after this, I would take my little dog, Gary, for a walk. Gary, he's lying down. <laughs> Gary, Gary's lying down. He's, he is 15 now. I you know, read we'll go, that. We'll go for a little walk and, you know, not a great walk, but I need to be outdoors. So, I mean, especially like, the, like 10 weeks of being indoors at the start of the pandemic. I mean, it was brutal. And my story is probably one story that could be repeated millions of times over. I'm fortunate that I had people around me who knew what was going on and and really helped me get through it. And and now I'm fabulous. Yes, you are. And so before I ask you a couple of my closing questions, I wanted to make a connection because one of the things that helps me be the most balanced in my life is yoga. I actually think I'm a much nicer person when I practice yoga. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm a nasty person. I'm just better all around. And so randomly, we both love and know the phenomenal Diana Rilov, yes. yoga teacher extraordinaire. Can you tell me how you met her and, and tell me about your yoga practice? So we met because I used to live the first year of my gig in New York. I lived on 73rd between Madison and 5th. Oh, wow. And, w- and went to exhale to take uh-huh. her class. And we just became fast friends. Diana's just an extraordinary, life-affirming person. At the start of the pandemic, I was doing her class, the group class. I was getting so dark, I couldn't even do it. But And she knew what was going on. And, and she's just an amazing human being. And I had a really good yoga practice for like the first six months of last year but I got lazy and I need to start doing it again. (laughs) But for those who don't know Diane Rylov, she is just this amazing teacher and soul and her classes are great and she teaches online, but you don't feel like it's online. So I, I can't say enough about her. And you've gone to her retreats. I have. So I lived around the corner from Equinox in the West yes. Village. And I used to go, I went to maybe six or seven of her classes on a Sunday morning. And I knew I was moving out of New York City. And she said, I'm doing this thing in Tuscany. And I went, okay, <laughs> I'm in. And she was like, it was one of the boldest things that any student of mine has ever done. Because she's like, why would you come? You barely even know me. And she's a very close friend of mine. And I'm doing her retreat this summer in Tuscany as well, uh, in June. What, I'm very what, excited. Oh, how nice. That's amazing. Yes. And this time I can drive down. So I'm, I'm very how, happy about that. How long will it take you to get there? I didn't, I think probably eight hours from Geneva. Okay. It's not bad. It's, okay. it's all right. 
Um, so quick, quick questions to close, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, first is, what is your favorite word? And by that, I mean a word that you would accept to have tattooed on yourself, at least for a while. Chic. Oh. Yeah. I love that. What's one thing that makes you happy or satisfied or brings you joy? Oh, when my little Gary does his business in the morning. <laughs> it sounds so silly, but it is. It's like, you know, this is my baby. And he's, you know, to know that everything's working. God, does that sound insane? Yeah, no, no, Gary. no, no, it doesn't. I have an elderly cat and I understand. <laughs> yeah, it's just, a, it's just like, it's like, okay, it's going to be a good day. What secret superpower do you have? Oh, gosh, I'm so powerless. Um, gluttony? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't have one. I don't, I don't know. What's yours? Can I, am I allowed to ask? I've never thought about it. Uh, secret superpower? I could say my memory. I have a really, really good memory. Uh, so I wish my memory were better. I just don't know. You know what it is? I think my secret power is... I'm the switch. I'm Switzerland. I can get along with everybody. That is definitely a superpower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thanks for bringing my country into the mix. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what is your favorite sound? Oh, my favorite sound. Uh, I mean, I kind of love the sound of the surf in Malibu. Although like, I'm not like a huge beach person. It's just such a beautiful sound. Mm, Lucky you, you're close by. I'm not close enough. (laughs) (laughs) What is one of the most embarrassing moments of your life that you can share with us? I wish I could tell you this story, but I can't. It's like, to me, my embarrassing moments are when I run into somebody and I have no idea who they are and, like, I can't figure it out for days. I mean, that, like, who is this person? Oh, God. That happened (laughs) once in Paris on Rue Rivoli. I ran into Jean-Baptiste Valli. And he's with this guy. And this guy goes, Karen, like, how are you? I had no idea who it was. No idea. Like for, for days. And then I realized who the editor was. But, but I just was like so dumbfounded. And actually, it happened quite recently again. I was at the two-by-two two gala in Dallas. And this woman comes up to me, giving me a big, Karen, you're here. I had no idea who it was because a friend of, she had completely changed her hair. So that's where it happens a lot for, for me. And I, I, I know a lot of people. So, and I, I, oh God, the art of that is just the worst. I, <laughs> I hate that. And that, that's a solid difficulty. I find yes. that the hardest thing is when it's out of context, when you take them out oh. of the environment that you know them in. So that makes sense. What is a favorite book of yours? Favorite book. I wish I were a better reader. Oh, Mysteries of Pittsburgh, which Michael uh, Chabon that I read years ago. I just remember loving that book. Mm, Wonderful. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to close with my favorite question. And my favorite question is related to 
a mindfulness workshop that I was doing a couple of years ago. Mindfulness is so hard. <laughs> it's, it's such a great thing, but it is hard. I know. I, I, I believe you, I know. But the practice is really what matters, mm-hmm. not the result. Right. Mm. So this question that I love that I close all my interviews with is what brings you happiness? You know, I would say very simple things. Um, A Sunday morning watching the morning news shows, perusing the New York Times online next to somebody I'm fond of drinking coffee or a home-cooked meal at someone's house does not have to be elaborate. It can be mac and cheese but those like very simple things in bigger ways like i love to travel i i love to travel so much you put me on an airplane like i just i love it but really it's like i'd say one of my favorite joys and i always tell people that can want to do something for me like don't have to buy me anything don't have to do anything cook dinner at home and it doesn't like i'm not a gourmet i like i have very simple food tastes just toss a salad and a piece of grilled chicken or salmon. Very, very simple. But that really brings me joy. Because I think the most lovely thing you can do is, you know, bring someone to your home and feed them. It's food. Yeah. It's, it's, it's feeding. It's nourishing someone. So I guess, like, nourishing my body and my soul is, is a really nice thing to do. You're reminding me of my dad. We used to joke with my brother that there was so much food on the table when we came around on Sunday night for dinner and that it was his way of showing love. So we used to say there's a lot of love on the table. So Mm. I think that's probably something that is also expressed in what you're saying with friends, right? Yes, so so much so. And again, like nothing has to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be beautiful place settings. You know, just, just simple. I mean, Simple things bring me a lot of pleasure. Sure, extravagant things do also, but like those simple moments, I always say that, you know, time is the most valuable gift you can give someone. So if someone's willing to invite me to their house and cook for me and have a conversation with me, there's no agenda. It's just being together. It's very old school, very old fashioned. Mm. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Cameron, thank you so much for um, your time, for doing this interview. If people would like to find you or connect with you, where could we send them to? So my personal Instagram is at Cameron Silver. It's C-A-M-E-R-O-N, Silver, S-I-L-V-E-R. And you can also visit me at Decades Inc., D-E-C-A-D-E-S-I-N-C which is my store. And I reply to everybody's DM more or less, although I get a lot of creepy ones, but they're kind of fun. Like every, so that can bring me pleasure too. (laughs) Thank you so much again. I hope that you have a wonderful rest of the day. I'll put all of the links to things we've talked about and the store and your Instagram in the show notes. And so thanks again. And hopefully I'll see you in person soon. And perhaps I'll get a chance to cook for you if you come to Europe. I would love that. All right. Great to see you. Great now to I see you Now i got to go to work. All right. Bye. Of course. Ciao, ciao. Thanks again to Cameron for being my guest on the show today. So you can find him online at CameronSilver.com, on Instagram at CameronSilver, which I highly recommend you follow. 
And you can also find Decades on Instagram at Decades Inc. and plenty other links on there. So friends and listeners, thanks again for joining me today. And for links to the topics that we covered in the episodes, you can head over to the show notes. If you'd like to hear more, please go to your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. And you can leave me a review. I love to hear from you. If you want to connect, please get in touch with me at Anvi on Twitter, at Anvi on Instagram, or Anvi Taller on LinkedIn. You can also follow at underscore at the clouds on Instagram, where I like to share some thoughts and musings on mindfulness and some guided meditations. You can find all of the podcast episodes, the show notes, my projects at outoftheclouds.com and you can sign up to receive some email updates about all the fun things I am doing. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Out of the Clouds and I hope that you'll join me again next time. Until then, be well, be safe, take care.